0: Well, good afternoon. I think we'll go ahead and start. We're a minute or two early. Thank you for coming to this session. This is a part of a three-class track that I do on Restoration History each year. So yesterday we had Victor Knowles doing a centennial tribute to Don DeWelt. And um, I'm sort of falling down tomorrow. I always take the last day, last hour, And I was going to write about all the women hymn writers produced by the Stone-Campbell movement, but that would take three minutes, and we have a full hour. So I had to change my title for tomorrow to uh, Women Hymn Writers in the Hymnals of the Restoration Movement. (laughs) So which women did we really enjoy singing their songs? That's what we're doing tomorrow. So I'm not sure that counts as restoration history, but that's what we're doing tomorrow. Okay, you've seen the title for today. Um, Carice is writing a book about our four mothers in the restoration movement. So, let me tell you a little about her. It was eight years ago this week, in fact, it was May 4, and today's May 2. So, we're coming up on the anniversary. Eight week eight, eight years ago this week, I s- totally surprised Carice in Firestone Field House by saying we wanted to honor her with Pepperdine's Distinguished Christian Service Award. It took her a while to believe she had heard that correctly. We tried to get her up on the stage. So I brought a copy of the plaque, and I'm going to read it to you. This will be the beginning of my introduction of Carice. I wrote this, so I remember it well. Pepperdine University presents the Distinguished Christian Service Award to Carice Berryhill, devoted servant of Jesus Christ, faithful student of the word of God, respected historian of the Stone Campbell movement, whose dedicated work with librarians, archivists, and historians has helped to identify, collect, preserve, and digitize Many Historically Valuable Documents and Publications, and One Who Has Given Her Life to the Cause for Which Christ Died. Presented on May 4, 2011 at the 68th Annual Pepperdine Bible Lectures, signed by Andrew K. Benton, President of the University, Edwin L. Biggers, the Chairman of the Board, and myself as Director of Church Relations. So that was eight years ago. Uh, Carice has a Ph.D. from Florida State in 18th century British literature. She taught English literature at Lubbock Christian University from 1975 to 1992, 17 years. Then she moved to the job that we really know her for. She became associate librarian at Harding Graduate School of Theology, working with the legendary Don Meredith for 12 years, 1992 to 2004. And then in 2004, she began what is now 15 years as special collections librarian at Abilene Christian University. I didn't bring my copy of the Restoration Quarterly, but you all know the Restoration Quarterly comes out four times a year. We have every issue back to the beginning here at uh, Mm -hmm. our library. It's now in its 62nd year. She is the president. She is the chair of our corporation board of the Restoration Quarterly. So in addition to everything else she does, she heads up this marvelous board on the, the Restoration Quarterly. Three different times in her life, she has been, she has received, I don't even, Melissa will have to tell me what this means. She has received the Excellence in Online Teaching Award Excellence in Online Teaching Awards, part of the WISE Consortium of Library Schools. This is for her course, her Theological Librarianship course at the University of Illinois. And she has received that award three different times. That sounds impressive to me. And I think, um, I asked her to do something yesterday and she said, well, I've got to teach my class from one to three. I thought I knew the whole Pepperdine Lectureship booklet this year. You're not teaching a class from one to three. She said, "I'm teaching my online class from the University of Illinois, and uh, you know, you guys aren't the only game in town. <laughs> and some of us work for a living, and I won't see you from one to three.
1: Where did you teach that at?" In Candace's office. Candace Flowers'
0: office. Candace, where are you? James
1: is She's here. She's
0: not. She's not here, is she? No. no. James. Somebody Man- has to watch the children, right, James? <laughs> well, so you went to Candace's office. <coughs> And just and you talk for two hours.
1: Well, I interviewed another librarian. Oh, uh, smart we do nurse. that a lot in that course. We oh. bring practitioners in to talk to the
0: students. Oh, okay. Well, you can see she is very well qualified for this book she's writing on remembering our foremothers in the Restoration Movement. Will you welcome Currie Berryhill.
1: Jerry, you just ran off with my notes, darling.
0: Thank you. make
1: sure he gave me all my notes back. I only brought 30 handouts, and I think that some of you may have to share. Uh, but uh, I want to talk about... Thank you for having me. Jerry, thank you for inviting me to come. You're welcome. I'm, I'm glad to be back at Pepperdine. It's been a while. I want to tell you before I say anything about the lesson that I have a cough. And uh, you will think I'm going to cough up a lung. just don't be concerned. I will live through this, uh, and I will keep going. Uh, so I may tears may be streaming down my face, and I may be croaking, but I'm going to keep talking. Um, this is called Stories of Faith and Courage. And I want to talk about four women um, from uh, three different periods. The middle two women are almost contemporaries. Um, and all of these women, to me, have been inspiring uh, examples of um, women who found, um, through their faith, um, places of service, and who, in, in many cases, overcame great obstacles um, in that search to be able to serve. And so... Um, there are a lot of other women that I would love to have included. I have a lesson on Irene Gatewood, for example. Um, and and there are three other women in the Campbell family I'd like to talk about someday. But uh, we're going to do one woman from the Campbell family, and then two women from the 1890s to the mid-20th uh, century, and then... Uh, uh, And then one woman who's actually in the 20th century, born and and, uh, died in the 20th century. So we're going to start with Jane Campbell McKeever. Did you know that Alexander Campbell had a sister who was a college president? (laughs) Really? Uh, This is Jane. Now, his mother's name was Jane. And uh, so, you know, you can get a little confused. His mother's name was Jane Cornagle. And she married Thomas Campbell. And they had ten children, three uh, three of whom died in infancy, seven of whom survived. Alexander was the eldest. And Jane uh, was 12 years younger than him, so she was one of his baby sisters. And um, she was uh, bright, uh, uh, intelligent. They say she had bright, expressive eyes. She's a very fair-haired little kid, probably almost white hair. Uh, These kids were all born in Northern Ireland where they lived with their parents. And then in 1807... as a result of a long series of church conflicts and things, Thomas's doctor said, Thomas, you got to get away, like, go away permanently from this situation. And so he decided to go to the United States. And he was going to discuss it with the family. Alexander, who was 20 at the time, said, Dad, whether you go or not, I'm going when I come of age, which would have been 21. So Thomas thought, well, I'll go on. And he moved um, he sailed across the Atlantic moved to western Pennsylvania wrote back uh, the next spring and said okay come on meanwhile Alexander and all of his little siblings and their mother had been kind of they'd been keeping dad's school going so they sold everything and uh, were preparing to come and about the time they were in the middle of this process smallpox swept through their village and the children got sick. Several of the children were sick, including little Jane, who was very seriously infected. It damaged her complexion for the rest of her life, but she survived. By the time the smallpox epidemic had abated, then it was very late in the season to get a ticket to sail to across the Atlantic, because you know then the storms come in over the fall and the winter, and you can't sail if you're in a sailing vessel, and So they kind of bought, got tickets on the last boat out and headed out uh, from Northern Ireland, and they're going to sail up into the Irish Sea and then over into the Atlantic. They never made the turn because this huge storm comes in and smashes their ship on the coast of Scotland. Uh, Little Jane is uh, eight at the time, and uh, she had a little brother's... um, uh, Five and, uh, four, uh, four and two at the time. You can imagine trying to manage a two-year-old on a sailing ship with rigging. Just think about that. Um, <clears throat> so now they're in, everything they have is soaked. They've escaped with their lives. There's this great narrative. Of Alexander was not allowed to leave the ship because women and children get off first, right? So they rescued the women and children, and Jane, his mother, gets on this giant rock, I picked her kind of like a hen with little chicks, you know, and she's got the children gathered around her, and they're on this rock waiting uh, for Alexander to get off the boat. And he made it off the boat, and they got dried out, and he went back on the boat and got Dad's books and their possessions, and they got dried out. But then it was too late to sail across the Atlantic, so they decided to stay in Scotland. It's not like they had any place else to go. And so they made connections with church friends and ended up in Glasgow for a year. And then rewind, that's why Alexander went to one year of college, by the way, rewind the whole plan, the next summer they're going to sail again. And so this time they made it, they arrived in New York in 1809, then they sailed from New York to Philadelphia. I got a wagoneer to take them 350 miles west. On the 11th day, they met Thomas, who was coming to meet them, <clears throat> and he scooped up little Jane and said, "Is this my little white headed girl?" Really, she was almost unrecognizable she had she she'd been very damaged, but he didn't care you know he 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 just scooped her up um, They traveled three more days and settled in their home in western Pennsylvania um, When Jane was eleven, she recited the entire chapter of proverbs thirty one at her big brother's wedding and <laughs> Then when she was 13, her family, uh, her mother and dad, made a series of moves to to work in evangelistic work in Ohio, uh, back into Pennsylvania as far east as Pittsburgh, and then over into Kentucky. And um, Jane uh, is a very apt pupil and becomes an apt teacher. She assisted her dad (coughs) in schools. Uh, Thomas... Never made enough money preaching to support his family, and so he always had a school. He was a good schoolman. By the way, he has a beautiful hand. He has a beautiful handwriting. It's a schoolmaster's handwriting. If you've ever had an elementary school teacher in your family, you know how the handwriting how beautiful it is. Alexander's handwriting is terrible, but Thomas's <laughs> handwriting is beautiful. And so she helped her daddy with schools in these states. Um, the crisis came in Kentucky because it was a slave state. And Thomas, not really thinking too much about it, thought that there were some people here who were slaves and they needed to learn how to read. And one of the brothers from the church said, Brother Campbell, that's illegal. And Thomas was just outraged. And they kind of packed and moved back to Pennsylvania, just like that. Because he wasn't going to put up with that nonsense. And so um, uh, this is a very early indicator of something that was very important in Jane's life later because she becomes an ardent abolitionist. Whereas her brother, her big brother, trying to cull the churches together and not let that be a divisive issue kind of tried to steer middle course and of course both sides accused him of waffling and not taking the right stand. (coughs) She wasn't public enough to be called on to make a public stand. So she made a very personal and private stand. Um, They lived in West Middletown, Pennsylvania, uh, she opened a home school for boys and girls in her own home when she was 19. Um, she called it Pleasant Hill Seminary. And seminary doesn't mean a divinity school like it does today. It just meant uh, kind of a prep school sort of thing. Um, and then she married um, Matthew McKeever in 1821. When she was 21. I'm so glad she was born in 1800. It makes it easy to think about how old she was when she did something. Yeah. Um He was a wealthy wool merchant, he was a wool broker. And wool was the big industry in that part of the world right then. And uh, he made a lot of money and they had a lot of property. They also had nine children and then they adopted 12. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They also converted their barn into a station on the Underground Railroad. And um, one day Matthew came into the kitchen and he said, "Um, um, it seems to be that we're out of bread. And she said, well, you know, we have such a large family. But actually, he was taking the bread to the runaway slaves in the barn, (laughs) Um, as well as how many ever children they had on hand at the time. Mm -hmm. Matthew, um, by the way, was one of the financiers of John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859. Uh, In 1840, Matthew became a trustee of Bethany College, which Alexander had founded that year in Bethany, in the... In the panhandle of West Virginia between uh, Pennsylvania and Ohio, what was still then called Virginia, there's this little ear that sticks up, and Bethany is riding that little triangle there, and West Middleton is just over here in western Pennsylvania. They they could almost walk, they couldn't quite walk, but they could easily ride a horse or take a buggy between their two schools. And you find lots of references in Campbell's uh, Millennial Harbinger, especially Uh, to uh, uh, his sister's school. Uh, She founded, so when her brother had founded a college-level institution, which in in some ways was still a higher prep school and early college, it wasn't really what we'd think of as university level. I mean, it grows in that direction. Um, She founded, she converted her Pleasant Hill school into Pleasant Hill female seminary, which reminds us that Bethany was only for boys. And here's Jane, who believes in higher education for women. And so she starts a college named Pleasant Hill Seminary for Women. And it uh, operated from 1842 to 1877 uh, after her death. Um, It was a liberal arts curriculum. Uh, It was not a finishing school for ladies. It It was an effort to educate them in the liberal arts. So they studied math and language and science and public speaking and uh, you know it wasn't a normal school where you learned how to teach. We're going to talk about those in a minute. It was um, it was a college very much like Bethany in that Scottish model of the liberal arts college which is kind of the template for our colleges in Nashville and Abilene and and Malibu uh, from, you know, from the very beginning. I have a letter here that she wrote to an abolitionist newspaper um, in 1854. I truly rejoice to find that one, capitalized, of our brotherhood has had the fortitude and independence of mind to rise superior to the reproach and opposition of so many of his professed Christian brethren in behalf of the poor, oppressed, and degraded slaves, I trust that you will be encourage, encouraged to persevere, believing that God, who in all generations has been the, the God of the oppressed, will strengthen you and bless your efforts in the good cause for which you plead. I intend to exert my influence in this victory vicinity, in this vicinity, she means Pennsylvania, amongst our brethren, amongst the churches of Christ, in behalf of your magazine. It was the Northwestern Christian magazine edited by Ovid Butler who also published essays by Frederick Douglass. Um, In 1866, uh, she's by 66 66 years old by this time. She turned over leadership of the school to her son, TC, uh, but he he dropped dead very soon after that. And so she came out of retirement uh, um, again and resumed leadership along with his wife. who had always been involved in the operation of the school, and another woman. They they had 105 students enrolled that year. And uh, the list of their graduates who received the degree Mistress of Arts, (laughs) kind of like that, Mistress of Arts, as opposed to Master of Arts, Mistress of Arts, uh, she had 165 graduates from her school, eventually. The
0: 105 students (laughs) were in what year?
1: Uh, 1866. She retired finally in 1868, having kind of stabilized things and made a transition to new leadership. She died at the age of 71. She was already 71 uh, at her daughter's house in Ohio. Um, She is buried in the Campbell family cemetery. and um, I have a picture here of Matthew, her husband, and a picture, you've got this picture in a small format there. And here's a picture of Pleasant Hill Seminary And on the back, here's a picture of their graves, if you want to just pass those around. How did she die? I I think she probably died of pneumonia, you know. uh, She was in her 70s. Her husband outlived her by another 12 years or so.
0: Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. Is there a historical marker on that pleasant, uh, on that seminary property?
1: Um, That's a good question, and I don't think I know.
0: I asked the guide who was driving me around Washington, Pennsylvania, and I can't remember what he said. Yeah,
1: I don't don't know. It was West Middletown. See, Matthew had immigrated to West Middletown uh, from from Ireland, yeah, uh, uh, shortly after they had moved there. And he was already there by the time she got back. So she found this young man of promising means. So that's Miss Jane. I really like her. I like I like her uh, determination to um, create opportunities for women. And uh, Alexander sent his daughters to her school, <laughs> so I think he proved. <laughs> uh, I like her. You know this story of coming to a new world and establishing a new life and traveling so much, teaching. Um, uh, I, just, I just really appreciate her. So I think she's a good example of faith and courage. All right, I want to move almost 100 years to Sarah Andrews. Now, I did not know Sarah, but I knew her sister, um, who was one of my mother's mentors. And uh, some of you of a certain age may have heard of Myrtle Thompson. Maybe you didn't. Maybe, maybe that's, you had to be more in the center part of the country to know Myrtle, but Texas person. Uh, this story begins, however, long before Sarah was born because Sarah's mother, Ada, Adele, but they called her Ada, Ada Shepherd, um, had gone to a school in her home state of Indiana when she was a girl, and she had adored her teacher, whose name was Kate Johnson. Kate wanted to be a missionary in Japan, and so she left the school and she went to Japan to be a missionary. And you can read more about her in Bonnie Miller's book called Servants of the Risen Sun in the Land of the Rising Sun. It's a great story. Kate uh, was uh, connected with the Disciples Missionary Association. Uh, She served in Japan from 1886 to 1917. Um, Ada, however, did not get to go be a missionary. Instead, she got married and had eight children. (laughs) And she moved to Tennessee, to Dixon, Tennessee, which is just west of Nashville. And she and her husband uh, established, they, uh, they had a farm near there. They established a congregation, organized a church there in Dixon. And to them were born these eight children. The second oldest child was Myrtle. And the one, two, three, fourth oldest child was Sarah. So it's Rob, Myrtle, Pete, Sarah, Kate, Douglas, Bess, Neil, and Mark. Um, but I want to talk about Sarah mainly, but Myrtle kind of comes in and out of the story. So Myrtle is Sarah's big sister. Sarah was born in 1892. That was the year that J. M. McCaleb went to Japan with a team of people to begin evangelistic work in Japan. Um, Sarah was baptized. Um, well, I want to say I want to mention in 1904, Kate Johnson comes back from Japan on furlough, and she visits Ada. And that is it for Sarah. She sees Kate. She understands her mother's passion for mission. She says, that is what I'm going to do. And she never wavered from that vision the rest of her life. Um, she was baptized when she was 14 by I.B. Bradley at the Walnut Street Church of Christ in Dixon, Tennessee. Brother Bradley was the guy who organized funds for her the whole time that she worked until very late in his life when he was too feeble to continue. Uh, and that was very close to the end of her life as well. And um, when Sarah was 17, she met J.M. McCaleb. He came through Dixon, raising funds, talking about the missionary effort. And she waltzes up to Brother McCaleb, and she says, she's 17, she says, I want to be a missionary in Japan. And he, I think he kind of patted her on the head, you know, and said, well, honey, you know, get your education, and and then, you know, let me know when you're ready to go. So that's what she did. <laughs> she got her education. She finished her high school education. Then she went to Memphis to go to normal school. How many of you had a grandmother or a mother who went to normal school? Anybody have a grandmother who went to normal school? They're now state universities, um, but they're teacher's colleges. And they were usually a two-year program where you learned how to teach children. So Sarah went to normal school. And when she was 22, she was done, and she wrote, Mr. McCaleb, I'm ready to go to Japan. And he said, well... (laughs) Do you have any money, <laughs> you know, to go? And so they had to work on that. On Christmas Day, when she was uh, 22-ish, maybe 23, she took the train to Vancouver, B.C. and sailed from there uh, to Japan. She arrived on January 16th of 1916. She never lived in the United States <coughs> for more than a couple of four years at a time yeah, so after that. She sailed us. I th- well I have two sets of notes then. They're probably one of them is wrong. <laughs> Good catch. I'll have to look. Yeah. Um maybe the train went to Vancouver and then she went down to Seattle to get the boat? I don't remember. It would be in it would be in the book Virtuous Servant. Um because the, the details of that boat and there's some ship's manifests in that in that in that book. Thank you. Um, so she joins up with the McCaleb team. They have this massive house. She lives up in one of the little bedrooms upstairs. And in her first year of work with the McCaleb team, of course, it's mostly devoted to learning the language, but she made a convert. She converted a woman named Iki, or you'll see her name, Oiki, which is a little prefix. Her last name was Naimura. Oiki stayed with Sarah and helped her the rest of Sarah's life. And she was converted the first year that Sarah was in Japan. And she stayed with Sarah the rest of her life. They also converted Oiki's mother um, in the next year or so. Um, then there is a series of, of moves. Sarah moves from um, uh, uh, um, Tokyo, where the Michael team was, to Okitsu near there. And then in 24, she moved to Shizuoka. She had gone home in 1920 for her first fur- furlough, and she was gone. She she was gone about two years, but her relatives were very upset about the kind of house she was living in because they were worried about her health, and so they bought her a prefab house and shipped it to Japan. Oh my uh, Sears and Roebuck I'm had Sears some of these. Yes. yes, you could buy it. this. This one was not from Sears, oh, it but not. it was from another supplier. But it was like that. You could buy a whole house and have it shipped and yes. put it together. Huh. So they sent, and it's still there. I have oh a PhD student who's uh, who was there last year, Jeremy Heggie, and he went and see to see the house. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Have you seen it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <clears throat> what was Oeiki's last name? Naimura. N a e m u r a. It's in very small letters there under her under her photograph. She took her second furlough in 1926, and she brought Iggy with her. And they spent uh, four years in Nashville, and in Dixon, and in Los Angeles. Uh, The McCaleb's are based out of Los Angeles. Uh, They returned to Shijuoka in 1930, then uh, began a new work in Shimizu in 1933. 1935 to 1939 was her third furlough. And at that point, she was so sick that she had to go to the Mayo Clinic. Now, Sarah never came back to the States until she was too sick to carry on. And the reason she was sick is because she would not eat. She would not buy food for herself. She would put all the money she could put into giving to orphans or to poor widows or into the work of the church, and she starved herself. Um, And if you see pictures of her, uh, even, um, not to mention the war years, she's just her health is always terrible. Her teeth were always bad. She had a lot of digestive problems. She just, and it was just because she was so abstemious with her money that she wouldn't spend any money on her own Uh, well-being. She sacrificed everything for the people she was trying to help. Now, the way she would work in these cities is she would teach women about how to take care of their children, and they would study the Bible. And, you know, she was working with women and children Just like Irene Gatewood did, you know, you know if you can build a church, if you can raise the kids, if you can teach the children. And uh, so that was her method, was to work with the kids and uh, with the mothers and help moms and kids. (coughs) So she ended up establishing eight congregations in Japan, four of which I think are still, still survive. Eight.
0: I'd always heard
1: four. Well, there are four that survived. Um, Okitsu, Shizuoka, Shimizu, and Numadzu.
0: But she established it.
1: I think so. Uh-huh. I, or else I made it up.
0: Can you give me the year when she was at the Mayo Clinic?
1: Um, yes. No, it was somewhere between 1935 and 1939. And do you know if George Pepperdine helped I don't know.
0: Financially?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, there are not very many of her papers and collected in one place. Uh, the family still has a lot of documentation about her life. And uh, uh, the woman who wrote Virtuous Servant had access to photographs and, paper- and documents that, that are not held in any library anywhere. And so all we know is what's in that published book called Virtuous Servant. Uh, and it's a, it's a study of uh, Sarah's life.
0: Somebody quotes the line, and John Marshall, maybe you know this, that, that the Mayo Clinic said to her, she was so worried that she didn't have money, that we don't charge missionaries. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's a, I, I
1: believe know. that, I believe yeah. that. The yeah. neurosurgeon who worked on my dad said, I've never charged a minister in my life and I'm not about to start now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in 1941, as the, uh, as the war, the Paci- Asia Pacific War, as my Japanese friends call it, uh, <laughs> was ramping up, um, a, Japan, the government of Japan, decided to organize three religious state communities, a Buddhist, a Hindu, and a Christian, or Shinto. One of those may have been Shinto instead. But the Christian group was called the Kyodan, and it was all the Christian churches of any type were supposed to go into this union uh, organization, and then they would be identified Um, Sarah held in her hands the deeds to three churches and she would not give them up Mm -hmm. and she would not encourage her churches to join uh, the Kiyodan. Um, There's been a dissertation done on the fate of the Stone Campbell churches through that period and emerging on the other side. Many of the churches just vanished, um, and but Sarah persisted, and one of the reasons that Sarah refused to leave Japan was because she felt the trusteeship of these documents that preserve the property of these churches. So she was the only I, I claim uh, she was the only. Missionary in the Stone Campbell movement, and I think of any denomination who stayed through the war um, in Japan. Uh, she was incarcerated fairly soon, taken to a prison camp. She was so weak and sick and feeble. They said, "Go throw her back at her house. We don't, we don't want to have to take care of her."
0: Whoa.
1: And um, I, I, I wonder if I've got the date here. Yeah, in 1945. Uh, she was still at her little house trying to minister to people. And she woke up uh, on, on June 19th and Shizuoka had been firebombed by the Allies. And her house was the only house standing as far as she could see. Praise God. <laughs> and she had missed the whole thing. She would slept through the entire thing. <laughs> and so the authorities began bringing Wounded to her home she crawled from one pallet to the other to try to take care of, of the people. And then they came and picked them up and said, you're doing such a bad job. We're going to take these people someplace else. You know, but this is the character of this woman. Meanwhile, her family hadn't heard anything from her in a long time. And they couldn't get letters from her. She was allowed to write, you know, like 10 words a month or something ridiculous like that. But she couldn't, the mail didn't go through. So they hadn't heard from her. Myrtle, her big sister, you remember Myrtle, mm-hmm. uh, was living near Killeen, near the big air base in Killeen, Texas. Her husband's name was T.B. Thompson, and he was a fairly well-known preacher in Texas. And uh, Myrtle and T.B. would have G.I.s over to the house on Sundays, and they talked talk to them at church. And Myrtle always had Sarah's address on a little piece of paper. And she would give it to the G.I.s and say, uh, when the war is over and they send you to Japan, or if you go to fight there, Look for Sarah. Here's, here's where you should look. So, um, on October 28th of 1945, this Jeep rolls up it, in Sarah's front yard. And a couple of GIs get out. And they, uh, she wasn't there. And then in a little bit, they waited a while. And she came back from church. And, and they said, are you Sarah? And she said, yes. She weighed 87 pounds. She had been eating grasshoppers and glad to get them. So they gave her all their K rations or whatever it was then, and zoomed off in the in the jeep and went back to the base and got more food and brought it back. Of course, she gave it to all the orphans yeah. and widows, and, you know. And so then they saw to it that she was evacuated on a hospital ship and got back to the states and and was uh, treated. So that was her first fourth. Fourth furlough, say that 10 times, Mm -hmm. fourth furlough. Uh, She stayed three years in the States between 1946 and 1949. Um, Meanwhile, her mother, Ada, uh, died. And also Myrtle's husband, TB Thompson, died very suddenly. Myrtle was uh, 57 at the time. Uh, TB was 66. So Myrtle has to reinvent her life. You know, And, and Myrtle decides to go on the road. And she starts doing women's lessons and workshops, and going from. Tr- I remember as a child when she came to our church in Lovington, New Mexico, and did a series for ladies. And she said to my mother, Callie, you need to be teaching. You know, and, that, and mother, you know, kind of went what? And but it was it was the stimulus that mom needed. You know, for somebody to say you 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 could do this. You need to do this. You're nodding, Betty. You know, yeah. Um in nineteen forty nine Sarah returned to Japan for the last time and built uh, the things she'd been dreaming of. she'd been raising funds the whole time she's in the United States to try to build a rest home for war widows, Japanese women whose husband had been killed in the war, who had no they were destitute and had no means of support. She wanted to build a rest home, and uh, she did. and the church met in the building, and then the upper floors. Uh, there was a kind of a dormitory uh, for women and uh, that is where she died in that upper floor of that building she herself had built. Um, Myrtle, meanwhile, um, at the age of 65 became dean of women at York College uh, when it was getting off the ground. When Sarah died in 1961, uh, she died in Numadzu in this women's rest home that she had built Um, she was buried in Japan before her family even heard that she had died. Uh, And the Japanese Christians appreciated her so much that they had built a huge monument. Uh, You've probably seen it. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, It's a granite monument. I've seen pictures of it. I haven't been there. Uh, Inscribed with her good works and tributes to her. Uh, Truly a person of great stamina and great courage. Myrtle lived... Uh, until she was 91. Uh, She died in Dallas. She's buried in Denton beside TB. Um, She's spoken at the Harding Lectures. She received a certificate from ACU in uh, 1976. Um, TB and Myrtle had worked with churches in Florida, Texas, Florida and Texas. And then uh, their daughter was uh, married to Russell Dyer who was one of the pioneers at York College and that was the connection there that got her to York. Sarah's churches established uh, were Okitsu, Shizuoka, Shimizu, and Numadsu, which are all kind of scattered mm-hmm. south and west of Tokyo.
0: Shizuoka is still a pretty good sized congregation.
1: Is it? I, I I just think that's wonderful to go see. You know, I knew Did you work it?
0: Well, I knew Maeda, they, they were, uh, Fumio Maeda and his father wow. were there as, uh, the... Uh, what baseball, baseball team did you play for? <laughs> I mean, what city were you Back living to in? the talk. Huh? <laughs> huh? What city were you living in? At? At, at that time, Hiroshima, in, Hiroshima. in Osaka. Yeah. Well, Hiroshima for two years, in Osaka. Uh, and how far a drive to these churches that she was down? Shizuoka's about, an, oh, you don't drive, it's uh <laughs> to take you forever to drive. It's about an hour south of Tokyo on the uh, bullet train, and I got thrown at it. And, you know, she's a guy. I remember it very well.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Annie Tuggle. Uh,
0: we have about 20 minutes for the last two. Okay, so. we, can, we can do it.
1: <laughs> Annie was uh, Annie was a ten, both both uh, Sarah Andrews and Annie Tuggle were Tennessee girls. Annie Tuggle uh, was a, an educator, and was extremely well connected with all the efforts that were made to build colleges for African-Americans in the Churches of Christ. And she knew both, both great pioneers in uh, education uh, in that field. She was born in ni- 1890. She was born in Germantown, Tennessee, which is now an upscale white suburb, but then was a little rural country town out east of Memphis. Um, she was baptized when she was 18 and uh, her, none of her family had been members of the Churches of Christ. And she heard an evangelist, and she made a decision, and she never looked back. Uh, uh, Annie had a very kind of flat determination to stick with that message, and, uh, and she did. Um, she is a woman of uh, determined judgment. Um, she was baptized. Immediately began leading this congregation in Smyrna of other women. She attended Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee. In ni- when she was 19, in, in 1909, she would have been about 19. She ran away from home because her parents. She wanted to go to normal school. There's normal school again. She wanted to go to normal school in Memphis, and they said no. You can't go to school in Memphis. You'll be dragged into the sex trade, sex trafficking trade, and and your your life will be destroyed. And So she ran away from home (laughs) and she went to her aunt's house in Memphis and um, three days later her dad was knocking on the door. Where is, do you know where Annie is? And she said, yes, Annie's here. And he said, I'm taking her home. And she said, "Uh, let me talk to you about that. And she said, I'll I'll provide for her. I'll take care of her. Let her get her education. And he turned around and went home. (laughs) And she got her education. Well, she got what she could get at that point. It took her many years to assemble credentials and in kind of a random order that doesn't fit with very well with our current understanding of the process of doing that. She was 33 before she actually earned a high school diploma. Meanwhile, she'd been a principal and a teacher in several different schools,
0: oh my you know.
1: Wow. But it, was, it was, she was, she was good at it. She began teaching at Prospect School in Memphis. Uh, she met G.P. Bowser, a great African-American educator and uh, founder of... Um, Gospel Echo in 1902, she met him in 1913 and he said, come help me at Silver Point Institute. Well, she wanted to go to school at Silver Point and he wanted her to come help and she did. She taught, she swept, she did laundry, she did whatever she could, she learned, she studied um, and raised funds. And this turned out to be something she was very good at, raising funds. Um, She became principal of a school in Shelbyville, Tennessee in 1916 Then in 1920, um, she was invited to go back to Nashville to raise funds for the Nashville Practical Institute, which was an effort that A.M. Burton, Amy Grant's grandfather, decided to fund and uh, it was going to be a practical school for technical training and occupational training for uh, uh, poor black students who needed training to get a good job. Uh, He he asked G.P. Bowser, great educator, to come be the Uh, principal of the school and he appointed a white man a white preacher to be the superintendent and they bought out this old catholic school, turrets and everything and set up the school On the first day of school uh, the the, uh, superintendent whose name was D.W. Doris um, uh, looked out the front door and saw black children coming up the front steps and he said, but you go in the side door, you go around back this is their own school and they're not allowed to come in the front door. And the school closed within a week because the students and, and the teachers just said, nope, nope. Bowser said, nope. <laughs> they're just not going to put up with that. And this is, this is one of the things that always characterized Bowser was he was not going to put up with condescension and with prejudice. He would rather starve, you know, than have to submit. And... Um, there are several ways to approach that, but that was his approach. Uh, Annie So is out of a job at Nashville Practical Institute, so she decides to go to school at Fisk uh, there in Nashville. No, she went to Walden College high school program uh, and got finally got her high school degree, and then she decided she was going to go to Fisk University. But when they told her she had to go to church at the Methodist Chapel because Fisk was associated with the Methodist Church, she said, nope, and she walked out. And so she went next door to what was then Tennessee A&I State College and uh, um, got more work there and then became principal of another little school near Memphis. Meanwhile, a man she had met at at, uh, Walden College uh, got a medical degree at Meharry College and then he came uh, as a suitor. And she married him in 1927 when she was 37 years old. What she really wanted was to have a family. Uh, he wanted to move to Cincinnati and uh, open a a pharmacy. And he was very concerned. It was, depression was severe. He was very concerned about money. He didn't want them to have any children. They they and and there was a terrible. Um, he recommended a series of treatments for her, which destroyed her fertility permanently, and she was crushed and. She said, this marriage can't go on. And so they made an agreement that they would divorce, and they made a vow that neither one of them would ever marry, remarry. And they never did. And she never saw him again. She saw him once from a distance, but she never, she never communicated with him again. So she resumed her work. Um, she traveled to Florida. She returned to, to uh, Memphis, and she, she lived with her sister Irene, who was a great uh, inspiration, and the partnership of these two women is very important. Um, There's one Memphis story that I want to tell, and then we'll talk about Detroit a little bit. Um, When she, she was working out east of Memphis in what's Cordova, which now is also another upscale white suburb, but then was a poor area with little schools, and she was working with a school there. And she met a preacher named William Owens who was trying to build up a church in central Memphis at the Iowa and Lauderdale location. And he said, Annie, we need you. We need your skills. We need your teaching. We need your energy. We need your fundraising ability. Come help us. So she decided, she and Irene decided to move into Memphis. And she started working with Brother Owens uh, to build up the Lauderdale church. Now, the Lauderdale the um, Iowa and Lauderdale Church was actually a mission outreach that was funded by the old downtown White Church, the Union Avenue Church in Memphis and they were in financial trouble they were not, they were losing ground, they weren't making a budget, and the membership was not really catching hold, so there was this big meeting between the leaders of the Black Brethren and the leaders of the white church and Annie was at the meeting, and so was Irene and there's all this serious talk going on about what are we going to do. And they were very near this decision that they were going to have to sell the property of the black church and dissolve it. And Irene is, is doing this, <laughs> you know, giving Annie the elbow. Say something, say something, say something. So Annie said, brothers, I think it would be a really good idea if you would get the evangelist Marshall Keeble to come lead a protracted meeting and let's see if we can build up the membership of the church and they bought it, and they didn't close the church. And in the next couple of years, they had two protracted meetings with Marshall Keeble and then A.C. Holt, and um, they built, they built a, a church. Then Annie had a problem. She had all these new converts, and she didn't feel like she had had any training in study of the Bible. So she went to study under a woman, I have her name, Annie Massey, was a white Christian. She was at the Harbor Avenue Church in Memphis. And Annie says in her autobiography, Another World Wonder, that Annie Massey had also taught somebody else who studied in Memphis. Sarah Andrews. 15 years earlier. Is that not something? you Remember, Sarah went to normal school in Memphis. Annie's in Memphis now. And... Annie Massey is a link between these two women, even though they never knew one another, but they knew this one woman. Um, In 1943, she went to Nashville to help Brother Keeble with Nashville Christian Institute. But the next year, in 1944, she moved to Detroit, and she stayed there 20 years. Uh, She sold insurance. She and Irene baked pies and sandwiches and would take them downtown, and they built up a great catering business and they made enough money to pay off the house. And then they made enough money for her to publish a book. She self published a book. And it is utterly unique. It is called Our Ministers and Song Leaders of the Church of Christ. And it is a pictorial directory and biography of leaders of the Black Churches of Christ in 1945. And it has, every man is profiled with a little biographical sketch that Annie wrote. And then he is allowed to give a quotation, it's his favorite quotation, there's a photograph. And here are dozens and dozens and dozens of faces. There's a second section of the book, there's ministers and song leaders, and then there's a second section of the book which is our younger men. One of those young preachers in that book was a 15-year-old Fred Gray, the great civil rights lawyer who was one of Keeble's students. You know, he was on her radar. (laughs) She knew everybody. She uh, returned to Memphis when she was 74. Then she decided to take a mission trip to Bahamas and Jamaica and Haiti when she was 77. Uh, In 1971, um, Irene's son came to Memphis and said, Mom, uh, I want to take you to California. I've got a place for you in Paris. California. And he said, "Uh, Aunt Annie, you're coming too. I have a place for you. And if you'd like to come, I want you to come too. And so these two old women moved uh, to California where Irene's son uh, helped them. And that's why uh, Annie Tuggle died here in California in 1976 when she was 86 years old. When she was 82, just four years before her death, she wrote an autobiography called Another World Wonder. And she doesn't mean that she's a world wonder. She means it's amazing what has happened in her life. And she says, that's just a world wonder you know, that this happened. I could tell, I could tell stories about Annie. For, you should read that book. It's not an easy book to find. Um, but it's a, it's a great book. Okay, let's talk about Mary Oler just a little bit. I've got 12 minutes maybe. 10 minutes, 12 minutes. Maybe, mm-hmm. minutes, 12 minutes. Mm-hmm. 12 minutes. Mary Oler. Um, was a teacher of teachers. Mary was on the front cusp of the great building movement in Churches of Christ in post World War II era, when Broadway in Lubbock and and Skillman in Dallas and uh, Madison in Nashville are building up programmatically, and the big emphasis is on religious education and teaching. And Mary says, "We need to teach children the Bible. We need to teach children." Uh, Mary um, was born in 1910. She was uh, a a child of a second marriage. Uh, Her father was much, much older than her mother, and so she had half-siblings who were much older than her, uh, which was a good thing because uh, her parents died the same week when she was 14. Uh, And she she and her brother were more or less, her own brother were more or less, kind of orph- orphans, but she had a big sister, a half-sister, who took care of them. And they lived in Greenville, Texas, and so she finished high school there. She met Gail Oler who was eventually to be her husband, uh, while in high school, but she wouldn't date him because he wasn't a member of the church. <laughs> and she wouldn't have anything to do with him. Nope, nope. Um, well, then they went on to East Texas, what was then East Texas State, and they got involved in the Bible school, and he got started studying. And he was baptized, and then she was like, yep. (laughs) (coughs) 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 So he went to ACC then, and he went to Harding, and he started preaching. But he was preaching in Texas, and so their relationship got stronger. And at 21, she married Gail, and uh, they lived in that part of Texas, in east east and a little south of Dallas the rest of their lives. Um, Gail preached at Gilmer and Terrell and Ennis and Temple and Gladewater. In 1938, when she was 28, they began publishing a little periodical called Just a Moment. It was a devotional thing, kind of like Power for Today or something, that Gail did. Um, And then um, when she was 33, they moved to Bowles' home, and he was the superintendent at Bowles' home, which was a home for orphans. Mm -hmm. And she had four children of her own, but she also had 100 other children that she took care of. One of those children is a member at the church where I live in, in, in Abilene. Where do I live? Abilene. And she remembers that Mary would, would teach them songs and they had a little chorus for the children. And she remembers how she loved to sing with Mary and how important it was to her to sing. And Mary taught them to sing. And she loved them. Um, Mary was one of the very first people to teach on teaching the Bible to small chil- to small children um, in the very first Dallas Dallas teacher training workshop that was held in 1947. Uh, in, in the 1950s, Mary, get this, I can't believe you do you could do this. Mary taught a live Bible school for little kids on television. Can you imagine what? Two-year-olds and three-year-olds in a live TV setting are going to do when you're trying to teach them the Bible, and she did it for several years. You know, she had this weekly broadcast live, teaching the Bible to these little kids. Um, and she's in lots of training workshops and things. And this was the great era of the workshop teacher workshop movement in 1970 when Gail was when 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 uh, Mary was 60. Gail was having health problems and so he retired as superintendent and he, he did not live much longer. Uh, he had a stroke, I remember. She told me that after his stroke, uh, which he survived, he walked up to a door and he looked at the doorknob and he said, I knew you were supposed to do something with it to open the door, but I had no idea what. Uh, and so he had a series of cascading health events and died then when she was 63. Okay, so now what's she gonna do? <laughs> yeah. She goes to school. <laughs> And she earned a college degree, cum laude, in 1978 when she was 68 years old. And she poured her life into writing for children and writing for teachers of children. Um, um, Teaching the little ones, teaching is easy. She wrote dozens of little books of songs. She loved to write new songs. You know, our guys who are over here in Stauffer Chapel teaching new songs to the church, they... They should know some of those songs. She wrote hundreds of poems and songs for children. I I tracked down that she wrote for Christian Woman and Christian Bible Teacher and Christian Family Magazine and 20th Century Christian. She spoke at college lectureships at ACU, Fort Worth, Freed Hardeman, Harding, Lubbock, maybe other places that I just haven't found documentation on yet. I remember Mary because she stayed at my house one time in the 1970s Uh, Because I remember which house it was, and so it would have been between 1975 and 1977, and uh, she was doing something at Lubbock Christian at the time, and uh, she stayed in her one little guest bedroom, and uh, she she this you can't tell from this picture she had a smile that would light up a billboard, you know, just big toothy smile. Such a sweet, sweet person, and she loved those little kids. Uh, She retired finally in uh, When she was about 85, and she moved into um, uh, a Christian care center in uh, Garland, and that's where she died when she was 95 years old in Dallas. And she is buried um, uh, where Gail is buried. So that's my four girls. When can we read this book? What book?
0: <laughs> You're obviously going to turn this into a book. Can you oh, give us a. <laughs> I have no
1: idea. I've got another book I have to write first.
0: And oh. you, this is your first week of a four-month <coughs> sabbatical? Yes. It started um, May 1, which uh, I believe was yesterday. That's so right. All, that's right. May, June, July, and August.
1: That's right. And I'm going to Scotland uh, because I told you Alexander was in school for a year in Scotland. And I have one of his notebooks, a copy of it. The original is wow. in Bethany at Phil, Phillips Library in Bethany. And I've transcribed it. And I want to compare it with some similar notebooks that other students from the same professor um took between 1783 and 1795. There are three other sets of students' notes. And then Campbell's set is 1889. I want to know how much that course changed. I I mean, you know.
0: What's your current book that you said you
1: have to complete? This uh, this manuscript that uh, nobody can read it because it's written in Alexander Campbell's handwriting. I nearly went blind. Uh, But I have it transcribed. And so I'm going to publish it with a critical introduction and notes so that it'll be accessible to people who don't want to have to read his handwriting. It's awful. (laughs) Thank you all for your attention.